Hi, this is Ned Siegfried from Siegfried & Jensen. As proud sponsors of BeliefCast, we hope you are inspired by Todd's weekly podcasts, which contain so many courageous stories of recovery and personal growth. Remember, it's not what happened in the past that matters, it's what happens in the future. We invite you all to work hard and be optimistic about your future. Enjoy today's podcast. Welcome back, everybody. This is Todd Sylvester with the Todd Inspires Belief Cast. Thank you so much for tuning in again. I want you guys to know how much I love you. You guys are sharing these episodes and we're going viral because of that. I can't believe it. It's so cool. Uh, we're helping so many people and it's because of the amazing guests that I've had on my show. Um, I do need to give a shout out to our sponsors, Siegfried and Jensen, Wasatch Recovery, iHill Institute, uh, Veracity Networks, and uh, Living Recoveries Interventions. And so thank you so much for believing in me and helping this cause. We also have some uh, sponsors that didn't want to be mentioned. They don't want to just be anonymous. And I just, there's so many great people in this world and I just love you guys. And uh, so thank you for tuning in. And, and this is such a great thing. And today is going to be awesome, guys. Uh, we've got an amazing person on today. It's Arianda Alejandra Gibson. Did I say that all right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Ariana, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. I was, I was looking forward to today. Oh, me too. So a little background on Ariana. She's a documentary filmmaker and mental health activist who spends her, who spent her early career as a creative director and brand strategist for companies ranging from tech startups like uh, Clearcover to fortune 500s like Dell and nationwide. She's the founder and CEO of Stigma. This is going to be so cool. We're going to talk a lot about this today. It's a new mental health app that uses storytelling to fight loneliness to improve mental health. She's also one of the 46% of Americans who will personally experience mental illness in their lifetimes and believes the only way to normalize conversations about mental health is to be brave enough to have them. So we're brave enough today to have this conversation and we're going to get this out to hundreds of thousands of people. And, uh, I, Ariana, I was telling you before we got on, I just love your passion. I love your desire to help other people. And as I say this, you just light up, you know, I wish, you know, you're smiling right now and it's so beautiful to see that before we get started, you're, you're originally from Costa Rica. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. I know you had some struggles too with your, your father going through his own mental health issues. So talk about where did you grow up and a little bit about your childhood? Yeah, so um, I was born in Costa Rica um, and my father is Costa Rican. My mother is American. Okay. Um, unfortunately, it didn't work out between the two of them. And so mm. when I was one, my mom moved us to the States where she had family. So I moved from Costa Rica um, okay. to Prairie Village, Kansas, which was you know not <laughs> similar at all. Um, yeah. But I was young enough to, to not probably notice very much at the time. Um, but I um, not long after we moved there, my father was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And his is sort of a unique case in that um, many people who have um, schizophrenia schizophrenia, especially males are diagnosed in their late teens, maybe early twenties. And he was in his early thirties. Oh, okay. um, so there was a lot to, to understand about it. But what I often say to people is that I've never experienced life without the stigma that surrounds mental illness being a part of mine. Um, so when I think about what I'm doing today, in some ways, it's I sort of think, of course, but I couldn't have ever told you that's where I was going to go. Yeah. Um, I just knew, you know, I had a unique lived experience. Um, we, because it was a different time. So I was born in the eighties. Um, so there was not Skype or FaceTime <laughs> yeah, or right. some of the affordable ways um, to be able to stay in touch 
touch with people. And when we came to the States, we were on free government lunch and food stamps and um, just some government support. Um, so the idea of long distance phone calls that lasted a very long time <laughs> between Kansas and Costa Rica were not, um, were not that doable. So I remember it would be like a big event. We would talk to everyone in the family. We would do those calls, but we would also get these letters in the mail. And I don't know anyone might remember, but um, when you have snail mail that was international, it used to be these white envelopes with the red and blue lines around the edges. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So when one of those would come in the mail, I I knew it was from my dad, or at least from my family in Costa Rica. But there were many times that we, my mom wouldn't tell us what was in a letter. Um, and I think about how um, with serious mental illness, it can be a traumatic experience for the person going through it and for the, the people in their lives that love them. And in some ways I reflect and think I was protected in certain ways from some of the sort of harder to understand or potentially scarier moments of navigating a serious mental illness yeah. because we were separate, because I wasn't you know, in the same household. And so I think it's just everyone's story is unique and mine is in that way that it was in my life, but sort of in a controlled way. But then yeah. we would go visit my dad in Costa Rica um, sometimes staying, you know, for a month in the summer or at least a few weeks. Um, and so I got exposure to that day to day. But the one thing I have to say, because it just matters for people to hear it, is that yeah. um, I learned what unconditional love is from mm. my family in Costa Rica. Um, my brother was the oldest of four children. He has two younger sisters and then the youngest is his younger brother. And throughout his entire life, um, his family loved him. He lived with my grandparents until they both passed away. He now lives um, in a house of his own, but it's on the property that one of my aunts owns. Um, they're okay. just, they're always there for him. And I think as we get more into this conversation, the idea of community and being um, accepting someone for who they are is such a powerful way to help people heal and feel seen and feel less alone. And so yeah. I have to give um, some credit to my Tico family um, sure. <laughs> for, for kind of modeling that for me. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I, you obviously, you know, just sitting here talking to you, you're a very confident person. You're very passionate about what you do. Were you like that as a little girl too? Were you this confident person that just kind of spoke her mind or how were you yeah. like that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, I was, and there's, there's a funny story. Um, so when I was younger, I, um, I had an older sister who was a year and a half older, um, and I liked her a lot. Um, and so yeah. I wanted to be like her. And I think I learned a lot from her and she's a very smart person. Um, and so I was reading at a very young age and just kind of some things that, um, you know, I was advanced in certain ways. And, um, there was this story of how my mom wanted me to go to kindergarten and there was a cutoff for birthdays and it had to be September 1st. Um, and I was born on September 18th and, um, she tried to get the school to say yes to me going to the school. Um, that year they said, no, um, the next year I went to kindergarten and about two weeks in the principal called my mom at work. And so my mom was really worried that, you know, something was majorly wrong. She said, Miss Vargas, we have a problem. She said, yes, what is it? Um, your daughter is reading to the other kindergartners. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think that that would have been possible I if I hadn't had some confidence, but you know, sure. interesting I'm, I would say I'm a confident person, but like, even yeah. in this moment, I feel nerves because I live with anxiety and panic attacks. And so, oh, you know, I'm, okay. I'm in this world right now as a founder of a company who had to fundraise and um, pitch to, to VCs and all of that, where you're on stages and in front of people. And yeah. my lived experience is that 
on the lift ride or the car ride or the train ride to wherever I'm going for those things, I'm always wondering, am I going to have a panic attack? And like, is this yeah. going to be one of the days that I have yeah. a panic attack? And, you know, the anxiety about having a panic attack sometimes is, is more frequent than the actual panic attack itself, but for I think sure. it's a mix and that's why it's important. You know, I, I obviously can talk and talk a lot. Um, and I do think I'm a pretty confident <laughs> person, but you know, under the surface is what I'm dealing with from a mental health perspective. And I think that's, yeah. you know, part of why I created the company I did is because so many people have that experience of, um, you know, the, the yeah. vision others have of us and then what we feel on the inside. Well, and I think that's what makes you so authentic because again, you're, you're being honest here. You're, you're, you're opening up saying, Hey, yeah, I am a very confident person, but I have my struggles too. And I think everyone listening to this right now can say this exact same thing. And so all of us can look like we have everything put together, but at the end of the day, we also have so much in common. Cause as you talk about anxiety, I used to have anxiety so bad. I couldn't get out of my bed. And, and so I understand what that feels like. And so to hear you say that, I think it just, again, that's your, your whole platform is to normalize this and make you realize, Hey, we're all in this together, man. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I actually recently got the opportunity to speak at a, a college in Chicago and I had been doing, like I said, a bunch of pitching and stuff where the stakes are high and you need to raise the money. So there was so much pressure in these other events. And this one was just go be you on a panel. <laughs> and I thought, well, this will be easy. It was on a weekend. And um, mm -hmm. so I had time to, you know, do the stuff I needed in the morning, um, got there and was feeling fine. And I walked onto the stage and it was a panel where I was one of three panelists with one moderator. Mm. And I started having a panic attack on stage. And it was oh, an wow. audience full of college kids who were just excited to learn. Like they didn't yeah. need anything from me. Um, <laughs> and I was doing that thing that for me, I do. So I, um, you know, grounding help. So I might squeeze my hands and I was trying to do the things I knew how to do, but sort of spiraling into the thing where you're like, oh no, I'm in the vortex and I'm not going to be able to get out of this. So yeah. I was doing the, the mental preparation as they were asking questions. Part of my brain was listening and part of my brain was saying, where did I leave my bag? And where will I put the microphone when I get up and walk off this stage? And then can I get to my bag and what will yeah. I email them when I leave? So just that mental process of going through it. And when, you know, at some point it came back around to me and I didn't say I'm having a panic attack. I just said um, something to the effect of, you know, I have anxiety disorder and panic attacks. Like right now I feel very, very anxious. I feel my heart racing and mm -hmm. I'm excited to be here, but, and I was just open about it. And I had six young people wait in, oh, in a line man. to talk to me after yeah. the panel because I had been open. They said, you know, I felt that same thing. And it was really cool to see someone just saying it out loud. And so yeah. I found for my anxiety and when I'm like on the verge of panic attack, it often is helpful to me um, uh, for me if I just say it out loud, because most people are kind and don't yes. want you to suffer and would say, right. oh, can I do anything to help? But yeah. I think when you have, you know, different disorders, your brain tricks you into thinking, um, things are scarier than they are. Yeah. Well, th oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that again. I love how just real you are. You know, one of the things, uh, you know, when I was doing some research on you, <laughs> um, you know, I think you were uh, someone told someone, I think you were dating someone and they said, you know, you can never have kids with uh, Ariana because, you know, because her dad has schizophrenia and it's going to, it's going to transfer over. How did you handle that? And, and I mean, that's again, it's the stigma that you're like, you know, don't touch her, you might get it kind of thing. Like yeah. explain that a little bit. 
Um, that was heartbreaking. I remember. And yeah. not because this person was a good human being, um, not at all. The person who said yeah. it was not a good human being. Um, but it was, it was really painful because I was still in a phase in my life where I let stigma keep me from being open. So, um, when I would tell people that my father was schizophrenic, when I was a young person, the reaction was so negative that I just yeah. stopped talking about him entirely yeah. to the point where in college I had high school friends say, I've never heard you say the words, my dad ever in mm. our entire friendship. Um, wow. And it was because it was easier to ignore it because it was painful. Like people want to ignore, ignore the things that um, are, are painful to experience. And so I, I think I had, um, you kind of maybe trick yourself into thinking that like, no one's thinking about it or no one's talking yeah. about it. And I think for human beings, there's probably nothing more painful than thinking this thing about me that I can't control that I was either born into or born with or whatever it might be. Um, if that's the one thing that people judge me for, if people judge me for something I can't change, it's a very powerless feeling. Yeah. Um, I think that's why I've spent a lot of my life, like retaking power of this situation and, and, you know, building the company that I did and doing some of the documentaries that I've done in the past. Um, but I remember thinking on, on the one hand, ouch, that's so painful. Yeah. On the other hand, well, I survived that and, and I'm still going to graduate with honors and I got a scholarship to college. You know what I mean? My life was still fine. And so there's a component of it too, where I think these things that we build up in fear and avoid, um, I'm a big yeah. Brene Brown fan. I know a lot of oh, people yeah. are, so I'm not yeah. unique in this, I am too. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the idea of shame only surviving in secrecy, only surviving in the dark. Um, mm. and this idea of, um, the two most powerful words that one person can say to another are me too. Um, there's a component to what happened mm. with that scenario of just, it was this thing that I pretended was in the dark that people didn't know or didn't think about or wouldn't judge me for. And I learned that some people will judge me for it, but yeah. I'm still me and I'm still strong and I'm still smart and I'm yeah. still kind, which matters the most. And, yeah. um, you know, then it was over. And so there was probably a bit of lightness that came from this secret that wasn't a secret being yeah. out um, and me not having to, to hope or wonder. Cause as a young person, you, you know, it's like that struggle between I want to fit in, but I want to be unique. Um, and yeah. so, you know, I think that um, that moment happening was a, okay, well that happened and I'm still me. So let's move on. And was probably just one of the requisite steps in my path to, you know, getting to a place where I feel more comfortable talking about these things. Wow. Very beautifully said. Thank you. You know, so I want to obviously get into your app, the stigma app. Um, let's first talk though. What are the stigmas that are out there that you see that are, you know, that cause people even more pain um, because of these stigmas? What, what are you seeing in your research and, and obviously your passion around this? So uh, big question. I think the first thing that comes to mind is um, when we think about stigma, we think about um, the idea of people judging something they don't understand. There's a, a really good book called Paradigms Lost um, that mm -hmm. I read when I was figuring out what this company was that I wanted to build. Um, it yeah. talks about the origin of stigma and sort of the judgment people have of people with mental illness. Um, and so that, that was a but on my path to understanding stigma and seeing things. But when I thought about building a company, I thought, well, when you go pitch for investment, because I um, did not have the money to do it myself, I don't have the friends and family who are going to be able to like float that first round. Yeah, um, right. I, I thought, you know, you, you always have to solve a larger problem. And what is the macro problem that I'm solving? And I very quickly realized that it was loneliness. And so mm -hmm. I think that stigma and loneliness are inextricably tied um, because the idea is that loneliness mm -hmm. is this condition we can feel when we feel othered when we feel outcast or rejected or whatever it might be. Yeah. And there is 
a very biological, human, neurological um, thing that smarter people than I, and to be clear, I'm not a mental health professional. I don't have any licensure. I just have a lot of passion and lived experience. Um, But there's a man named John Cacioppo who um, has since passed away. He's out of the University of Chicago and he dedicated 30 plus years of his life to studying loneliness. So I read his research and I read his book, Loneliness. Mm. Um, And what I learned from his research is that... um, that loneliness feeling is, is pretty devastating and it becomes a vicious cycle that repeats over and over. So when you think back to, you know, prehistoric times, times where we traveled in tribes, then if we were outcast from the group for any reason, if we got lost, if they kicked us out, whatever it might've been, it was life or death. It was actually life or death. So when you think about the amygdala response and the hippocampus and how they're talking to each other to sense and perceive danger, when you get rejected, when someone says, don't have a child with that person, or when someone says, did you hear about her dad? Or did you hear what, you know, what condition he has, you have that feeling. And so that, that rejection feeling prompts our brain to go into fight or flight mode. We start sensing danger where there maybe isn't any, we change our behavior and we're more standoffish. So people either um, reject us or they don't come near us because we're putting out this energy of protecting ourselves and hypervigilance that gives us a smaller social circle. It's a smaller social circle for anyone who was in our circle. And now all of us are um, at a disadvantage because we have fewer opportunities to practice that, you know, social behavior that makes us connected. That is that thing that combats loneliness. So when you think about Mm -hmm. someone who's going through that over and over, if you think about victims of child abuse specifically, and I have, um, I was not a victim of child abuse, but my husband was for many, many years. And so what Mm -hmm. I've learned sort of through his storytelling and the research I did is that that can happen over and over and over again to the point where someone gets to a place where they don't want to be as unhappy as they are. They don't mean to be so cold or, you know, that's the kind heart in me tries to think of even this, you know, father who said this not kind thing about a 16 year old um, makes me think back and go, what pain was in his heart that, that he would say that what was he judged for? What unkindness was he shown for something that was different about him that made him project that onto me? Um, I'm a big subscriber to that belief that the way people um, treat you and and behave is a reflection of how they feel on the inside. Now, that's not to say that if you're very mean uh, that someone might not (laughs) respond because you were not being kind. But um, I just think that we become stronger the more we realize that everyone is going through something. That yeah. this idea of stigma is really just the product of it is loneliness. So how can we make people feel less alone? Because things that are stigmatized aren't just mental illnesses. I often say with um, yeah. stigma and the stigma app that we talk about mental illness and other misunderstood conditions, because there are things like autism. Like my son was diagnosed with yeah. autism when he was 20 months old and that's a neurological mm-hmm. disorder. You know, a lot of people think of it in different ways and it's beautiful how much people are opening up about it so we can learn yeah. more. Um, but that's not a mental illness, but it's still something that's stigmatized. It's still something that carries with it, um, carries with it a reputation. And that's kind of where story comes in. And I I realize I've been talking a lot, so I may pause for a moment, but storytelling's (laughs) connection to that idea of stigma is really strong. And so when I, you know, this idea of, okay, I want to combat loneliness because loneliness is is very problematic. Um, What John Cacioppo found was that the two most powerful combatants to loneliness are cognitive behavioral therapy, which is, you know, what a talk therapist will often work with. Yeah. Um, And reciprocal social connection. And Mm. so that's different than therapy. That's not me paying money to my therapist to use her degree to help me out. Although I love my therapist, she is wonderful. Um, It is the the scenarios of um, when you engage with another human being and give of yourself and they do too, simply for the the sake of of being kind. And that like 
sort of um, helps you remember what's good in the world. I think it's why you see popularity among um, social media accounts that share good news stories, because people are looking for that in a world that feels ever more disconnected. We want those stories that show things are meant to connect. Yes, yes, Yes. absolutely. Wow. There's so much there that you just said that I just want to touch on, man. That was so good. You know, um, the, the stick, you know, I see this a lot too with, uh, you know, my background's more on the addiction side of things. And, you know, people look at a drug addict, it's like, oh, they're criminals and they'll always be a criminal and they're liars and thieves. And at times we are (laughs) when I'm going through that, but, uh, but that's not who we really are. And I love what you said about when someone's maybe saying an unkind thing to you, that's maybe them projecting on where their hurts coming from because someone maybe did that to them. What a great perspective that is. And again, to be able to look at someone and again, it's hard in the moment of someone's being mean to you to think, well, they're just, you know, but um, how has that helped you just looking at that perspective when someone's maybe doing that? It just, it gives me a a curiosity about their lived experience because I, um, I feel like the luckiest person in the world right now, because I am (laughs) doing a job that I dreamed up. Like I created a thing that could be how I spent my life and I did the exercise. So, um, you know, a lot of people will say like, you know, create a list of the things that you love to do. And in 2011, um, I was in my late twenties and kind of figuring some things out and, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I felt like I was smart and had a gift for storytelling and I was applying it, but I was applying it in like business settings. And I just wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do, but I needed to make money. And so I did that. If you've ever seen one of those purpose Venn diagrams, it's sort of like four um, circles that converge yeah. with each other. And it's, what am I good at? What do I naturally good at? What do I yeah. love to do? What does the world need and what can I get paid for? And in certain yeah. um, intersections, it's like, I can do this and I can get paid for it. That's a profession um, versus like yeah. your purpose is when you can find the thing in the center of all of them. Yeah. And so what I knew that was that as a person, I loved hearing people's stories. So I used to be a, a walking cultural food tour guide of Chicago. Um, okay. It was like one of the many jobs I've had a million jobs. Um, it was one of the many, many jobs I've had. I've worked since I was 11. So I've just have a long list of interesting yes. jobs and very, very uninteresting ones. That one was great. Um, But I used to, it was a three hour tour and I used to stay after for at least an hour because someone on the tour would be interesting. And I just loved hearing what they had to say. And I had fellow tour guides who would say, you're making less per hour because you're sticking around for an hour after you're done. And I remember thinking like, that's the best part. That's that's almost that reciprocal social connection because I'm not getting anything for hearing their story, but I love making people feel seen and heard. So that was always a piece of what I wanted to do. Um, I also cared about the mental health piece and I couldn't have, I had different businesses that were, and not even businesses, but like um, freelancing kind of contract worker, like hustling kind of projects that I would do that in many ways feel like all roads led to this. But now that I'm here, I have a a mental health pop-up tomorrow. So that's one of the things that um, we do as part of Stigma app is um, we're committed to normalizing conversations about mental health. And like I said, in in my bio, the only way to do that is to to have those conversations, but we have to create the spaces for it. So right now in the world, there are all these rallying cries to just, you know, normalize conversations about mental health but there aren't enough people doing the work of creating safe spaces for people to feel comfortable doing it to actually do it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So you do with your podcast. I'm so grateful. Um, tomorrow we will have, you know, one of our, another one of our mental health pop-ups and I've been doing these now for almost a year. I've interviewed in, you know, on set and video, um, over 60 people now, I think, and people talk about everything. So they talk about OCD and anxiety and PTSD and child sexual abuse and Mm. autism and, um, just sort of everything you can imagine that might make one feel other or judged or just in pain. Um, And I think that sort of the common thread among everything is that um, if someone has had an experience or has a condition that makes them behave in a way that they're not proud of, they didn't want to behave that way. And, you know, in psychology, they'll often talk about presenting behavior. So I um, live with a husband who has complex PTSD from truly decades of child abuse, just very, very bad in foster homes, never adopted um, and went through some pretty torturous experiences. And when I first met him in big social settings, sometimes he would just leave. And when I first saw that, I thought, this is rude. Like we were invited to a dinner party or we were, you know, whatever it was, I thought that's not okay. That's not (laughs) good manners. And what I think would make the world a better place if we could do one thing only would just be to consider what might have prompted someone to behave in the way they've behaved. When you see something that you don't understand, when someone is short with you, when someone might be rude, um, to, to think about what if this person is navigating Mm -hmm. something under the surface that I don't, that I don't know no. about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so I think that's the thing, you know, with these stigma interviews, it's the common thread is people just want to be seen for who they are. Yeah. Um, anyone who has a, a mental illness, especially serious mental illness, or who has been through something trying like a, a sexual abuse or assault, they didn't want it. They didn't ask for it. My, my father certainly didn't ask to be, you know, schizophrenic. It just, it, it's his path in this world. Um, yeah. And so I think we have to be more thoughtful of those experiences. And the more we do, the more we understand each other. And I think we'll make more progress and people won't, won't struggle as much as they do now. Yeah. And, and I love that because I think it's like looking at people with, you know, through the eyes of kindness and caring and love um, and just assuming that, Hey, there's, they're going through something that I don't understand. And I've gone through some things. I might be going through my things and be able to look at it in that lens, man, what a, what a different perspective that puts onto things like, Hey, you know what? That person might just be struggling um, and that we don't know about, and they don't want to talk about it right now. And man, I just, that, what a better way to, to, to navigate through life. Right. Yes. You know, one of the things you said too, I th- correct me if I'm saying this uh, wrong, but you said the two most important things we can say to someone two most important words are me too. And meaning like, Hey, me too. I'm, I'm going through that too. Is that what that means? Yeah. So that is, um, Brene Brown original, not, not me at all. (laughs) Um, but she, Brene Brown talks about how empathy is the antidote to shame. And so what people need Mm. is an empathetic Mm. ear. And actually, if it's okay, I'd love to tell a little bit of the origin story of the app because it really relates to this, um, this concept of me too. So, um, as I mentioned, my husband was a, a child abuse survivor and abuse of every type, unfortunately. Um, but one of the things that is really stigmatized and often not talked about is um, men who are victims of sexual abuse. They feel yeah. like there's no place to go, no one to talk to, 
too. And so they are very alone with these feelings. Um, male uh, victims of child sexual abuse are 14 times more likely to die by suicide than the average male. And males wow. are, have a higher chance already um, between men and women. Wow. And so, um, you know, th- there were all these um, sort of things that had happened to John that he had been through and navigated. And I remember just being so wowed by how anyone could have that much desire to help others and be kind and all of these yeah. things. But I also knew he was really misunderstood. Um, so I always talk about this because it's important to me to bring her everywhere I go. But um, I have a best friend whose name is Lauren. Um, we met my freshman year in college and okay. we were in each other's weddings and we were just, I have mm-hmm. a sister who is lovely and I adore her, but it was like, I hit the lottery and I got a second sister um, <laughs> in Lauren. Um, yeah. And unfortunately in 2019, Lauren was diagnosed with a really aggressive and a really rare cancer. And by that was in June of 2019. And by December, um, it was pretty clear that nothing was really working. Um, and it was very, very hard. It's the one of the hardest things I've been through for sure. Yeah. Um, but she felt safe enough with me to talk about um, if nothing worked. Um, and I think that was a conversation that was, it would be hard for anyone to have. I didn't want to have it, but I also wanted desperately to have it. Um, but I know that her parents and her husband probably were so terrified of the possibility that she wouldn't make it, that it, it, she didn't have a place to put that. So we had that conversation and it was a beautiful, lovely, terrifying, but also just like, I don't know, just one of those things in life that you will always remember. Yeah. Um, and one of the components of the conversation, because Lauren was the the person who like, everyone has that friend who loves being yeah. alive, who like right. climbs all the mountains and kayaks <laughs> all the rivers and yeah. pets all the dogs, um, eats all the food. <laughs> she just lived right. Um, and she, she was telling me how sad she was that she didn't get to keep living, to keep doing these great things. And, um, one of the things we talked about, one of the things she said was, um, just promise me you won't wait to go live the life you want to live. And, um, that is a hard, a hard thing to hear, especially as, um, so many of us, I think in the workforce think about like, what am I doing with my life? And like, if I could choose what I wanted to do, where would I be? And what, what's keeping me from that? Because there's nothing like facing your own mortality or the mortality of someone who you desperately love um, to make you realize that like, you can trick yourself all you want, yeah. but, but we don't know how long we get. And so what matters to us in, in terms of the impact we want to make? Um, so I can't say that at that point, I was like, I know what it is, but yeah. Um, you know, back to, uh, 2011, when I made that list, I was like, I, I want to do a docu-series about mental health. I want to have it be called stigma. And I want every episode to be about a different person. It's going to end the, the (laughs) docu-series will end with me telling my father's story in Costa Rica. We'll have the beautiful backdrop and all of those things. (laughs) Um, but it's not as if Lauren said that and I said, well, I better get on doing that. But what I did was say to myself, I know I want to be a documentary filmmaker. I, before I met my husband, I really had a lot of trouble calling myself a creative or an artist or a filmmaker or a director. Um, and so I had to have like 10 X the evidence that I would have required of any other human being, um, to believe in (laughs) myself that that's what I was. Right. (laughs) And so I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot a video because I've been wanting to, for a while to tell John's story. Um, he wanted to speak at schools to kids about overcoming adversity. He had done it a couple of times and loved it. And I said, why don't I just shoot a video that you can use to send to schools? Um, so you can just, when you want to speak there, you share this. So they understand a little bit about what your background is. Yeah. So he said, yes. Um, and I will always, always be grateful to John for that 
going first and saying yes, because um, we shot his interview and B-roll in one day. It was three days before lockdown in March of 2020 in Chicago. Um, I had the early part of the pandemic where we were sheltering in place um, to just edit this piece of work that felt profoundly important and like I was on my path to what you know I wanted yeah. to do. And so I'm editing it furiously because I want to, <laughs> I want to get it done in time because yeah. um, Lauren's health was slipping and um, in, yeah. in a real way. And uh, I one day showed it when it was like, you know, 48 versions in, I thought, okay, I'm kind of ready to show it to John. I was working <laughs> with my creative partner, Sean. Um, he's a DP and a fabulous sound editor and musician. And so we worked together on everything. Um, and I showed it to John and he watched it and he said, this is stigma. And I always mm. like pause dramatically when I tell that story because it matters yeah. that you have someone in your life who yeah. supports your dreams, right? If, sure. if that's what you care about. And I do, I wanted to, I had dreams I wanted to fulfill and, and he did yeah. too. And I think most people do. Sure. Um, and I was in anticipatory grief that um, was just, we had a, you know, less than two-year-old I had, um, I was a first time mom. I was navigating the anxiety that I have always, the grief of knowing I was going to lose Lauren, all of those things. And he saw it before I did. And I yeah. thought, he's right. That's exactly what this is. And this is, it was short. It was like a 13 minute yeah. film. It's, it was the yeah. proof of concept. Um, uh -huh. <clears throat> excuse me. I was able to show it to Lauren, um, before she passed oh, away. Wow. And I, I recorded on zoom her watching and I just, I love getting to watch her face, um, watching me like build this thing. Um, I always get emotional when I talk about her and I always yeah. tell people that it matters because I was able to, raised half a million to over half a million dollars for my business idea. And I cried in every pitch I ever did because I brought Lauren with me to every pitch I yeah. ever did. And so I tell <laughs> kids too, when I get to talk at colleges, I'm like to the men and the women in this room, like there is a place for tears and crying and emotion in business. Yes. You just have to find the right audience. Yeah. Um, so, but so I know that this was a long preamble to the me too um, no, comment, but we're, we're getting there. I promise. No, um, this is beautiful. Thank you. So um, I got to share it with Lauren. Um, she died on, on May 12th of 2020. Um, the uh, premiere we had was May 30th of 2020. So I'm really glad that um, we worked quickly and she got to see it. Um, I, it was like a premiere on YouTube because it was still, you know, height of pandemic yeah. and uncertainty. Yeah. Um, but I put it on Amazon and also it got into some film festivals. And so it's not like it was super, super um, yeah. popular and everyone knew about it. But that almost made what happened next more profound, which was that strangers started reaching out to me and yeah. they would say one of three things. They would say, thank you for creating this platform. Mm -hmm. Can I share my story? And oh, wow. when are you doing an episode about and they would share everything you can imagine. Wow. And so I knew that there was a desire for people to tell their stories. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was happening was people were reaching out to my husband and what they shared with him was far more meaningful and far more um, sort of powerful in putting me on the path that I'm on now, yeah. which was that he had hundreds of people reach out and it, it still happens to this day really? um, that great. strangers will reach out and say, you know, I, I saw your documentary, I saw your story and so often it is men who are child sexual abuse survivors Man. and many of them would say, I can't believe you talked about it. No one ever talks about it. I know that you probably have a ton of um, uh, sort of knowledge in the area of substance abuse and addiction and things like that. And so often, you know, people are using substances to mask pain for things that they just feel they can't share. So the fact that my husband admitted, and I'm doing air quotes because it's not something you should have to admit, but that's how it right. feels when something sure. carries stigma. Yeah. Um, 
that he was a a child sexual abuse survivor in such a public way, people couldn't believe. And so he was getting messages from men kind of of every age. But what stuck out to me was men in their probably like 40s, 50s and 60s who were strangers reaching out on LinkedIn Messenger saying, Mm. I can't believe you talked about it. No one ever talks about it. The same thing happened to me. And I've never told anyone until now. Wow. And it wasn't that every message said that they were admitting it or talking about it for the first time, but there were more than 20. And every time I tell that part of the story to this day, I get goosebumps um, because it was a moment that I realized there's nowhere to go. Like there is nowhere to go to find the people who share your lived experience. And what I often say is we don't walk around with name tags at networking events that say, here are the, you know, (laughs) mental illnesses I'm struggling with. Um, But at the launch party for the stigma app, we actually did that. So I said, we have these lanyards, (laughs) the the blue stickers are things you live with. The black stickers are things that a loved one might be navigating. If you feel comfortable, put them on your lanyard. And before you leave tonight, talk to one person who shares a sticker that has the same color as yours. Um, because it's just, it's not that way at all. And so we operate in these physical spaces or digital spaces in our world. And unless it's the topic of the podcast or the topic of the talk that you're going to, um, or a support group, it is very, very difficult to find people who share your lived experience. And the more stigmatized something is that you're navigating, the less people want to admit it or talk about it. And so, um, it was really sort of John putting himself out there, people coming to him. And many of them asked if he would you know, be willing to chat with them, or they would just go into it over a messaging platform. And so during that period of the pandemic, the summer of 2020, he was talking to so many people who were opening up about their experience. And he would share a little bit about how his experience made him feel. Um, And what I've started to describe it as, is I think he just shared his story enough times that it lost a lot of its power to elicit shame. And it's, um, yeah, powerful how that can happen because he, he said this thing and these other people said me too. And he said, but me too. And both sides came out better for it. Both sides felt less alone. And so that was the thing that like watching that happen, watching the impact it had on him made me create the stigma app. I said, I'm going to create a platform that facilitates that kind of reciprocal social connection because no one had anything. There was no, you know, job offer that was coming or monetary exchange. It was truly just people saying, I feel alone in this lived experience. Someone has said they're willing to open up to me about it. um, And I want that. And that's really, you know, the, the idea behind um, stigma, the docu-series and the app is we have three pillars, which are education, compassion and action. Mm. And so there's the component of if things aren't talked about it, people don't understand it. There's also a really great Ted talk by a Nigerian author um, named Chimamanda Adichie. And it's from the Mm. like 2010 or 11, but she, uh, her Ted talk is called the danger of a single story. And I always Mm. reference that because um, when you think about things that are stigmatized, fewer stories are told about them. So I will always joke that when I was a young person, the only stories you could consume about schizophrenia were on law and order or the evening news. And they were often grossly misrepresentative of the lived experience of someone with schizophrenia. And they certainly weren't what I saw in my father. And so when I thought about you know, human beings, you can't blame them for basing their opinions on things on the lived experience they've had and the stories they consume. Right. And so a big piece of what stigma is trying to do is say, let's put stories into the public conversation. Let's just put story after story after story, because this person's experience with OCD and anxiety is 
might be totally different than someone else's or substance yeah. abuse or bulimia or infertility. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's a big piece of the, the education comes in, in telling people what that experience is like when it comes from the voice of a person living in it, you build that compassion. And then the app, the purpose of the app as an extension of this docu-series is that imagine the last time you watched something beautiful, something that inspired you. And it could be on mm-hmm. HBO or a top trending Netflix show or whatever yeah. it might be. When the final credits roll, what do you do? You want to share it. You want to share it with people. You have these emotions. You have like this compassion that is built. And they say that compassion is just empathy with the, you know, desire to take action. Um, So you want to do something, but in the best case scenario, maybe you Google a nonprofit or you try and figure out like, how can I contribute in some way to this pain that I just saw? And with Stigma app, what we're doing is saying, you can go offer hope to that person. You can say your story moved me in a way um, that was profound. And it's not a comment thread where people control each other. Everything that's on our platform is moderated. So I say often that it's the safest place you can go to talk about your mental health, because if someone were to say, share their story or ask for a message of hope, and they got a message back from someone that was hateful, that person who asked for hope would never even know that message existed because we intermediate. We're, we're the mediator between every message that comes through. And that is to protect people because the only way you create an environment for people to feel safe talking about their mental health is to put in ways to protect them. Um, And so that's, that's that big action piece to say, sometimes the only action required is saying either me too, or I see you. I loved how you opened your podcast. You said, I love you. I've said that in messages of hope to people. And I try and qualify. I'm not a creep. I just want to say, (laughs) I love all humans and I love you for being vulnerable enough to do this. And I mean, I just, some days I sit with my, my two teammates and I, like we have said out loud to each other, each of us has done it at some point. Can you believe we get to do this? Like that this is our job. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really beautiful feeling. Yeah. Well, you know, um, the app sounds incredible. Um, you know, because the power of connection, you know, the, which is obviously the opposite of that is loneliness and feeling like no one cares and, and being, there's no scarier feeling than feeling like you're alone. And I've been there myself, you know, you throw in the pandemic and everything else this world's been going through that just gets magnified a hundred times. So your app is so like, this is like such perfect timing at the same time though, you know? Um, And I, again, just listening to you. I mean, you light up like a Christmas tree as you're talking about this. You're just like, and, and I get why you pinch yourself. Like, you know, the stuff that I get to do too. I sit there and go, I can't believe I get to do this, you know, because someone once years and years ago in my life believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. I, again, I felt alone. And that one, just that one person saying, Todd, I believe in you changed my life. And it, it, it took me into this uh, area. I mean, had that not happened, I wouldn't be 32 years later talking to you. <laughs> I mean, how cool is this? I know. Right? It's, I mean, it's just, we forget the power that one interaction with another person can have. And wow. 
I mean, I, I mentioned this to you before we started, but I did a podcast interview a few months ago yeah. and we had someone join the platform, uh, join our community. So it's, it's a web application, which means you can't go to the app store and download it. That will be coming in the next two months, which is great. Um, but for now you just go to the stigma.app. Um, and it's just, you know, a way to join a community and you create a profile, but the profile is private. So no one ever sees it. It's just for us to be able to match you because when people submit a request for hope, they yeah. can do it as a text message an audio message or a video message. And that piece was really important to me. Um, one, because my son is autistic and 40% of autistic people are nonverbal. He is not nonverbal, but I didn't want okay. to preclude anyone from participating that for physical reasons or other reasons um, wouldn't be able to verbalize what it is that they um, wanted support with. But I did want yeah. it to feel human. But what I realized is certain conditions have um, carry with them such shame that some people have never spoken the words aloud. And wow. I think for any of us going through, you know, yeah. I, me saying I have anxiety, I have panic attacks. That was something that probably 20 years ago, I could never have imagined saying, uh, <laughs> let alone on a podcast that has such a big audience. Um, yeah, right. But, you know, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get. And so that's how yeah. we've built the app in a way that if you aren't ready to verbalize something yet, you can just use text. But what will happen is you will get messages yeah. back from people. And so imagine the scenario of someone um, like the people who reached out to my husband who said, I've never told anyone until now. Imagine talking about something like child sexual abuse or asking for a message of support using text and then getting 10 videos of men and women of different races yeah. and different ages and different countries. Like we had a guy in San Francisco ask for a message of support and an hour later, a guy in New Zealand offered it and it was both video. And it's just this beautiful <laughs> way to, you know, make people feel connected. But we wanted to create a path towards sort of increasing comfort. So if, if the way to feel less alone is just to watch stories, because that's what people do. So there was a, yeah. a study done by Hope Labs and Wellbeing Trust of 14 to 22 year olds living with depression. And they said, when you need help for your mental health, where do you go? And 90% unsurprisingly said online. And when yeah. they said, okay, what is the number one type of support you're looking for? 75% of those people surveyed said stories of people like me. Because mm. when we consume a story, it's the sort of one of the safest ways. No one has to yeah. know we're watching it. We can watch it. And for a younger person, maybe get some of the vocabulary to express what it is that we're feeling. We get living proof that we're not alone. So that's kind of, you know, we started with the docuseries and the stigma stories. Like if you go to um, the stigma.app, there's a stories page and you okay. can filter by condition. So you can say like, I want to see stories of people with OCD. I want to see stories of people with complex PTSD. Um, but that's sort of like level one. And then it's sort of the if and when you're ready to engage, um, you can do it in the way that feels most comfortable for you. So it can be text, audio, or video, and everything is asynchronous. So I think okay. there's some, you know, really thoughtful um, mental health apps and sort of communities that people are trying to build. But the the pressure to have a live conversation about something that you might just be easing into talking about for the first time oh, yeah. is a lot, even if yeah, it's anonymous it's to me. Sorry, and I'm just going on and on, but no, you're good. Um, you're good. <laughs> um, but just to have, you know, the the confidence to be able to talk about that thing, especially live, or for the person on the other end to know what to say, um, to to be able to hold and carry whatever might be shared um, in a live moment and have to say the right thing. That pressure is big. So yeah. what I wanted was to create something that for young people would be familiar, this asynchronous communication thing, mm -hmm. um, but that would also give people the option to engage or not. So if you're you know, having a hard day, you don't have to visit our, our um, app <laughs> or our website at all. Yeah. But what I encourage people to do is if you're having a hard day, go offer hope to someone because there is research that supports that regularly engaging in all behavior improves both your physical and your mental health. Yeah. Um, so what I say is 
I envision a future where people make offering hope to a stranger in need as common a daily mental health practice as journaling yeah. or meditation. Yeah. Because why not? It's free. We can use our lived experience to help exactly. someone else feel, feel better. It's on demand. And I think, you know, I've borrowed from really smart programs. Like if you look at Alcoholics Anonymous, a lot of success comes from that sponsor model, but there's also a lot of accountability, responsibility, yeah. and taking on that role in someone's life. But if you knew that you could just step into a place and say, Hey, I know exactly what that feels like. I had something similar happen. And here's how I navigate that. It's beautiful. We had yeah. a little girl, um, who, you know, was a high school student and she used, I don't know how she found us, but it's beautiful. And she um, asked for a message of hope and described what I would say is a panic attack. She didn't use that word. And I don't know if she knows that word, but she had to leave class and she sort of explained what it was that she needed. Um, And people were able to offer messages of hope. And I was one of them saying, you know, that sounds a lot like when I have a panic attack, what I feel is, and it's not, you know, me trying to help her figure out what's going on with her. It's just me saying me too. It's just yeah. me saying, I, I know what that feels like. Yes. Um, and so finally getting back around to the, the podcast episode though, um, I did a podcast, someone found us and shared that they were feeling um, suicidal thoughts, but didn't feel they could tell people in their circle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we have a lot of people say, it's nice to be able to put this somewhere, these feelings and not have to share it with friends or family because so often not just yeah. wor- being worried about the judgment, but we're worried about like they have their own stuff going on. They just had a baby or they just lost their job or exactly. whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so giving people the ability to sort of on demand tap into a community committed to kindness is what I wanted to create. Um, and we've had people say, you know, I found your, your app through a podcast. I'm so glad I did. And I work closely with someone at the American foundation for suicide prevention. And we talk about, you know, where do people put those feelings if they don't feel they have a safe place to put them. Yeah. And it's not to say that stigma app is, is the, the place for everyone, but I think it's a place for a lot of people because it's not about um, being judged. It's, yeah. <laughs> I, I hope I mean, so. I know. I know it's a bold thing to say, but yeah, you know, as you're saying this, I, I have to share this, you know, I was, at, I had a, a, an opportunity to speak at the prison, the state prison. And before I got up to speak, they had three inmates go up before me and spend five minutes sharing a little bit of their story with the whole, there was 120 inmates in there. And I'll never forget one of the guys got up and said, after after he was done, he said, if you don't own your story, it owns you. And what I love about what I hear you're saying here is your platform, this app gives people a safe place to own their story, right? I mean, you're allowing them to get out there and own it in the sense that, hey, I can share this. I'm okay that I just shared this. And then they get that messages of hope in return going, okay, that was good to, to talk and I, I I'm safe and everything's good. Yes. I don't know. Is that, yes. is that no, it is absolutely accurate. And I, I love that you say it that way. Cause we think about like, you know, to, to launch a company is hard and a lot and to build the technology to support it is a lot. So when I look yeah. at what stigma app is now, I'm like, but there's so much we're planning that's coming <laughs> and I wish it did all of the things. But yeah. one of the things that I, I have to talk about, because I think it's so important for this audience is this new book called Healing by Thomas Insel. Yeah. I have no affiliation with him. Uh, I don't I don't personally yes. know him. Um, but what what I'm learning in this book, I think, is is really helpful in terms of the way that we look at mental health. And so, um, you know, the term mental illness itself is stigmatized. Yeah. I interview a lot of people who say I don't have mental illness and then talk about panic attacks or um, times (laughs) where they were severely depressed or the anxiety that's chronic. And so I think what will likely happen, or I hope is that we can shift into a world where labels are less 
needed. Um, you know, this is a man who people should read the book because he'll articulate it far better than I do, but who talks about how um, he failed, how he spent decades of his career trying to solve this mental health care problem. And he says, we don't have a mental health care system. We have a mental health sick system or sorry, mental sick system um, because we're so focused on only helping people when they get to the point of um, needing maybe severe intervention or, you know, there aren't places to go or he thought the problem was access. And so I think what we have to look at is people can be physically healthy and get a cold. That happens. Yeah. It, it happens all the time. And no one yeah. says, oh, they're physically ill. But we will say, oh, they're mentally ill because they deal with PTSD or they deal with, yeah. you know, whatever a condition might be. Um, and I think we have to do a lot of reframing as it relates to thinking of mental health in the same way we think of physical health. So yes. um, I interview people and say, will you share the tools that you use to turn a bad day into a good one or um, yeah. that you regularly use to maintain your mental health? Um, because everyone's toolkit is different. So yeah. one person might love doing jujitsu and boxing to stay in shape and another person likes yoga and swimming, but if they're both physically healthy because of it, that's okay. Yeah. Um, and I think the yeah. same is, is true with, with mental health and people kind of don't think of it that way. But one of the directions we're, we're going um, with stigma that we're like working on building out is this idea of being able to ask for hope um, when you're just feeling a certain way, because I don't yeah. want to limit what we've built and this ability to tap into hope and kindness to people yeah. who are willing to raise their hand and say they're one of the yeah. 46% of Americans with mental illness, because right, right. you can feel lonely, you can feel um, yeah. listless, hopeless, um, whatever those words might be. And I'm working with a PsyD right now to figure out exactly the words we want to use. Yeah. And what might be nice is to say today I'm feeling, and I give this example a lot. There is um, a difference between the loneliness I might feel as a solo founder, right? That's a hard thing to do. And it's a ton of work sure. and you self-doubt and all of that. Yeah. That's one kind of loneliness. There's um, a different loneliness of um, being the mother of a son with autism who, um, when I take him to the park, like seeing the stuff he can't do that other kids can do or watching a, a child try to engage with him and him not respond and them give up and they don't understand, you know, what's happening with him. That's a different kind of loneliness. Um, yeah. the, the loneliness of missing my friend who died, that's that grief loneliness. So could we say to people, what are you feeling right now? And is it connected to one of your lived experiences? It might be yes, it might be no. It might be like yeah. this. I did an Ask for Hope this weekend um, and I cried in it and I watched it four times before submitting. And I thought, <laughs> right. I can't believe I, had, I interviewed someone who said, I watched my video six times before I submitted my Ask for Hope. And I <laughs> right. thought to myself, that's a lot. And then I did it four because I was like, can I be this raw? I created yeah. this platform and I don't know if I can do it. Yeah, um, but yeah. I said, I only want to share this with other people who, who have experienced grief because I want to know from them, like, how do you handle it when none of your tricks to make you feel less sort of lost about it are yeah. working? And so that's just yeah. a, you know, a personal aside, but I do hope that anyone who might be listening and thinks, well, I don't have a diagnosis. You don't need one. Um, you can come on the platform and just tap into to kindness if you want to, but we'll make it yeah. easier to do in, sure. in the future months. Oh, I love it, man. This is incredible. You're incredible. Seriously. You. Like, man, you're. <laughs> your passion and love for what you're doing. I can, you can just feel it. And I know our listeners are going, yes, you can feel it in your words and how you're speaking. You obviously have a lot of empathy for people. Um, If there's someone listening to you right now who needs some hope, you've already shared some amazing things already, but this one person right now who's listening at this very moment that needs to have a little bit of hope, what would you tell them right now? Probably the most universal and powerful thing I can say is that, um, you won't feel the way you're feeling right now forever. Mm. 
And sometimes in a moment when something has consumed you, and maybe it's because you let it marinate too long or whatever it might be, um, it can feel like it will never get better or things will always be this way. And I think what you have to remind yourself is that's never happened in your life before. You've never consistently felt only one thing forever. Um, There are actions you can take that make things better. There are actions you can take that make things worse. But I think if, if someone's feeling alone right now, know that you aren't. It's just that people aren't talking about it. And even if it feels low today, it is not always going to feel the way it feels right now. Wow. Beautifully said. I'd also add, um, go check out the stigma.app. Go there uh, to the website. There's stories of hope on there. Like you said, Um, in a few months, you said you'll actually be, be able to actually get the app through the app store. Is that correct? Yeah, so it'll be on both um, App Store and Google Play. And Google um, we Play. want to make it accessible to everyone. But the start was, can we can we build something that people want? Hundreds of people are saying yes and regularly engaging. So um, yes. if anything, even if you are listening and you think, I'm not going to go ask for hope, that sounds hard. Go offer someone hope. They can send yes. thank yous. And the thank you messages you get are just, they will make your day. They will make your heart sing. So I, I highly encourage anyone listening to go offer someone <laughs> hope. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. You, you're giving me a lot of hope just listening to your very words. Uh, this has been fantastic, honestly. Like, I don't know, I could listen to you all day. Um, and, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I, I talked a lot. Sorry. No, no, don't, don't be sorry. I think uh, my, that's what I want it to be. This is your story, not mine. And I'm glad that you spoke and you shared some very powerful things with us today. And um, the stigma app um, is well, it, it's needed. And I'm, I'm sure it's going to be a huge success. I'll do everything I can to help you in that realm. We're going to get this out. Uh, we'll uh, get this to as many people as we possibly can, because everyone listening to this is struggling on some level with these things. So thank you so much for taking some time today. Yes. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. <laughs> any, any last words you'd like to say before we wrap it up? Oh, last word. I probably should have prepared for this. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's just, just those words that are so simple, but powerful that you are not alone. There are people who want to help you are loved no matter how bad you think life is or how guilty you feel for actions you've taken. You are not a product of your worst decision or your worst day. Um, And there are a lot of people in this world who just want to help others feel better and share their experience so that, you know, you're not alone. So that's a lot of parting thoughts, but yes. I, I hate the idea of people suffering. And I just want people to know that like, you're beautiful, no matter what you've done, yes. or who you are. Wow. I love it. You're amazing. So there you go, folks. I told you to, this was going to be amazing. Um, Arianda, uh, Alejandra Gibson, hopefully I said that correctly, <laughs> but you're a beautiful soul. I love what you're doing. And I can't wait to have our listeners hear this story. If you are struggling, um, you know, take those words. You're not alone. If you know someone who's struggling, please share this episode with them. Um, it may be a good way to actually, uh, like we said, give someone hope, share them, share this episode with them, send them the link. And this might open up a conversation. Maybe they'll go to the stigmaapp.com. You can also share that with them. It'll be in all the show notes. So they'll be able to get there as well. But, uh, yeah, this has been amazing. And I'm so grateful for people like you. We need more of you in this, in this beautiful world that we have. And you're making it better. So thank you so much again, uh, Ariana. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Until next time, everyone. Love you guys. Take care.